Shiroi, how's it going? I see you, uh, you're in the little booth thing at the office. Yeah, sorry if sorry if anyone can hear the legal aid agency theme tune behind me. Someone's definitely got their phone on speaker in the office, so I apologise in advance. Right, well, it's the 18th of December, so even though we want to be in the in the Christmas spirit, this episode is going to be another pretty heavy one, which I don't think we can ignore what the wider kind of global issues are right, right now with the backdrop being Gaza. We thought we would follow up which with what seemed to be a really popular episode uh, last time out that delved into international humanitarian law. This episode, we intend to discuss the concept of bringing international humanitarian law and bringing those concepts of international justice and how to hold states to account when they are in breach. And that often deals with effectively getting to what's called the International Criminal Court. And we have uh, an absolutely brilliant guest on. Anna interviewed Toby Cadman, who's the co-founder at Guernica 37. And Anna Anna will give Toby his full proper introduction because he's a super impressive guest. And he will delve into what is international justice in the sense of the International Court of Justice, International Criminal Court, and and what, what it means to to get there and how you get there. It's an incredible episode, but I thought Shroy and I, like we can't ignore what's going on in the wider world and we don't want to ignore it, we also can't ignore what has been happening in the last few weeks after what was a, a wonderful victory in the Supreme Court where we had maybe less than a few hours to celebrate <laughs> because, like someone put it, it was like a horror movie and just when you thought you had killed the monster another head emerged you know you know what it reminds you know what it reminds me of yeah you know when your team scores like a last minute winner and you're all celebrating but then you see the ref lifting the offside flag <laughs> and you're just like no no no, no surely not surely VAR. Not. i'm just wait. i wish there was some sort of judicial system for var yeah exactly yeah. well this time it's even worse it's var but the organization in charge of uh, or, or the organization that lost has also put in a further rule that there is no VAR <laughs> or a referee. So we are where we are. So maybe we'll give a little bit of a summary for those. I'm sure everyone has tried to keep up to date as to what's been going on. But yes, we won gloriously in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court held that the then Rwanda policy is unlawful. What then happens, Troy, soon after? I mean, when you're talking about soon after, it is literally hours after, isn't it? We, I remember people sending me tweets because we had all the messages which we dealt with in, in the previous episode, sort of messages of congratulations, really fantastic outcome, giving us hope again in, in, in the judicial system and all, and all those sorts of messages. But then you do hear noises from pretty senior MPs um, and some members of the cabinet from memory as, as to what they're going to try and do to ensure that the judgment of the Supreme Court ultimately has no bearing upon the enforceability of the Rwanda plan, right? And at the time, I just thought, well, how can, how can those two sentences even coexist? because the entire judgment is about the, the enforceability of the Rwanda plan in, in legal terms. But yeah, we, I think we're now, we're now at a point where if you're saying that the, the executive can quite literally dictate to the judiciary what can and can't be considered, notwithstanding the fact that the most senior members of the domestic judiciary have already made a very clear, well-reasoned and well-thought-out judgment, then that's probably... I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say this, that's probably the most dangerous 
legal territory we've been in in this country in in my lifetime. I can't I can't think of a more dangerous time um, legally speaking because it, it using using Rwanda as an example, right? There might there might be a lot of people that sit there and say, yeah, well, I couldn't care less whether they send people back to Rwanda anyway. It's the will of the people, whatever. Okay, look, not with, notwithstanding that argument, if you if you have a government that can legislate to tell courts what is fact and what is not with the most senior courts in the United Kingdom having established that fact, where does it stop? What, what, what is the point in having a legal system? Oh, I was, I, was at, I was at a Christmas thing a few days ago. One of my mates said, well, I mean, if, if they do succeed with this, doesn't it make you feel just a bit hopeless and pointless about being a lawyer? Like what what is the point in you, in you operating and, and, and trying to operate within the parameters of the law if if it's the executive that are going to be telling you what it is? Yeah, totally. And and in a way, that statement applies not only to us sort of <laughs> lowly legal aid lawyers, but the Supreme Court, <laughs> justices of the Supreme Court, the highest judges of the land can, in one swift exercise of what is apparently Parliament being sovereign, can say that whatever the Supreme Court has held, well, it doesn't matter. We can just overrule it in a way which is which which may not be controversial. You know, you do have situations where Supreme Court has, has ruled on something and then Parliament can then, you know, deal with that, tackle it by passing new law. I'm not entirely sure that's the controversial bit. But I guess what the controversial bit, and which is, you know, in answer to your mate's question, what what do they then do? What they what they are planning to do with this bill is is take away pretty much any powers from those judges, all judges effectively, to be able to make a further ruling on whether or not Rwanda is unsafe. And when we when we talk about whether it's unsafe or not, we're talking about whether sending people to Rwanda breaches their basic fundamental human rights. And what they're saying is that the courts won't have any power to rule on the general safety of it. So we are really in that territory. We're, well, I mean, one commentator basically says in in his article, this is Mark Elliott, whose stuff I'm sure you've read, Shoy, you know, he's, um, he's a professor of public law at Cambridge University, and his, his stuff since they've come out with this nonsense has been brilliant but his latest article the stock heading of it is are we headed for a constitutional crisis and then his his beginning question is in the article is could the supreme court really strike down the rwanda bill so now we've moved on from what we believe to be a completely correct decision of the supreme court on the evidence making a factual assessment Round two, if you want to call it like that, uh, is all about constitutional principles, the doctrine of the separation of powers, Parliament sovereignty, um, and what 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 we do with inevitably our clients who will always be the, the victims of all of this because they're going to be waiting around, not knowing what the hell's going on. So it is a I agree. It's um it's a very very strange time and a really upsetting and, and 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 really difficult period I think to be a lawyer to be a judge to be any anyone who tries to uphold the rule of law because this government seems to not really care much about the concept of rule of law they think the majority rule is the be end and end all and that trumps anything 
And I think anyone who studied basic principles of government would have remembered other very important concepts like separation of powers and the rule of law. So I don't know. I don't know where we're going to be with this, but um, we will, I guess, be back on this come January and onwards. I don't, I don't think we can actually plan the season of this podcast properly because yeah, of yeah, yeah. the developments. With, I think what we should just do is have the episode that we want, but promise a 10 or 15 minute therapy segment like this just to discuss what's been going on with the because think about it we've had how many impromptu rwanda episodes have we had over the last year or impromptu discussion we should just tack on 10 or 15 minutes to to sort of keep everyone up to date well i don't know how did, how did you feel about you remember the night when um i think it might have been the night before the commons would have voted on it or whatever and we hear that mps are resigning over over this new bill right and then and then i start seeing the reasons as to why people are resigning but they're resigning because they're saying it's not going far enough yes. i'm sitting there thinking what what more what more do you want them to do here you, yeah it, that that's what i thought they were resigning i just sat there and thought okay maybe they are taking some sort of principled stance and i've said you know what enough is enough this doesn't make sense financially i don't know why you're pursuing it you're going to send us into the constitutional crisis but no they're saying they wanted more from this yeah i know i was i I don't know whether he's... Are you even shocked anymore? I mean, I don't know. I, I was surprised, shocked. Who knows what the responses are, but I agree. The narrative so quickly shifted to whether or not this went far enough and how upset a bunch of Tory MPs are with it not going far enough, rather than it there being a serious discussion as to why this is so, so dangerous and so unprecedented in how it completely takes away the powers of of the courts and how that that's that that's itself as i think you mentioned right at the beginning of this conversation how dangerous that is it was right it was all about trying to appease those mps you know the the group the families they call it and who knows what what will happen in january in 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 relation to the next reading and how it will either be watered down or more extreme but i guess look ultimately we are we're reactionary we look at what we can do for our clients, but we will be there for sure. Whatever law is passed, if we're able to, if there's a possibility of challenging it, I'm sure we and others will. But yeah, it's and we're we're kind of laughing in kind of some sort of surprise or we're we're pretty we are disgusted by it and we you know we joke about whether it's VAR or a horror movie or you know I. I know you're not into Star Wars, Troy, but it really felt like winning in the Supreme Court was the you know the end of the first Death Star destroyed. And uh, I know you're nodding. You're not. You're you're shaking your head. You have no idea what I'm on about. But there, there are many Star Wars fans out there, apparently including Rishi Sunak. Can you believe it? He's apparently a Star Wars fan. I wonder whether he sits in a quiet moment and realizes that he is. Or literally on the dark side. Well, that makes me even more glad that I'm not a Star Wars fan, as if I wasn't glad already. So thanks for sharing that bit of information with me. Well, let's not move this into a Star Wars episode, but um, but it was. It's now a second Death Star is being built as we speak, and we, the Resistance, is figuring out how to um, defeat it yet again. And then I think maybe maybe we will, or we'll certainly try. And I think, in a way, it's important because. And the reason why it's helpful, I think, for us to talk about it on, in, in this episode, and I mentioned it earlier, what does it, the international community, the community that has regard for the rule of law, what do they make of the United Kingdom potentially acting in a way which willfully disregards international humanitarian law, international law, 
um, if you look at the bill itself, it's pretty it's pretty wild, isn't it? And 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 how does how does the international community react to it? You know, I don't know. It's hard to, hard to tell, really. Well, I mean, look, you're you know, we we live here, right? And we and we keep up to date with British politics on a on a day to day basis. But I've got I've got family all over the world, and British politics is one of those things that people in a lot of countries do keep up with. Um, and coverage coverage of the the Rwanda plan when it was in very early form was was big, particularly in Europe, because you had a lot of European states knocking about thinking, well, if if the UK actually get away with this, then then maybe we could too, you know, because there's there's a lot of relatively, I was going to say far right, let's say right wing governments in and around Europe and around the world that, that would probably want a country like the UK to sort of take take the first step and, and then they'd follow on. So sadly, I don't know, man, maybe, maybe, maybe the state of politics now Europe wide, worldwide is such that people aren't that shocked by it anymore. And, and people just think this sort of stuff's acceptable, normal, commonplace, dis- disregard for for human life and all the courts is, is perfectly acceptable. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm being cynical. But the more the more we talk about it, the more I really do not want this to be the last episode before Christmas because this is really upsetting. We need to we need to we need we need to do a, a lighthearted episode before the twenty fifth, please. Yeah, I know, I agree. But we can try. We can we can definitely try. But but I think I think you're right, and I think it's it's just a shameful state of affairs when a British Home Secretary in you know the beginning of of a bill has to make a statement that actually confirms that he's unable to make a statement that the bill is compatible with the convention rights. People look at that with a sense of pride. People look at that with a sense of pride. They're like, that. that's a, that's a strong politician, you know, not having to worry about the, the European convention and just making, and making domestic laws that, that advance the agenda that this government wants to advance. And I'm sort of sitting there thinking, no, man, it's actually deeply, deeply upsetting, shameful, embarrassing, something that shouldn't really happen. I, I don't know, maybe, maybe because I'm, I mean, it might not be because of this, right? But all of, all of my family from other countries, they do sort of look at the, the UK as that, that sort of prestigious country, right? Because my, my parents came here and, and they always say that they came here because what, a lot of people say that they, they wanted to come to the UK because of respect for the rule of law and the fact that there was an element of safety in that regard, right? But now, notwithstanding all of the sort of economic problems and all these other things, but now you're talking about even that base level respect for the rule of law seemingly having gone gone out of the window. And I don't I don't understand why, because that, that was the same declaration that, if I'm not mistaken, was at the beginning of what was then the IMB, right? That's right, yeah. And so, so you're talking about back-to-back landmark pieces of, of immigration legislation brought by the same government within the space of, what, a year, year and a half? Yeah. And, ne- and neither of them being compatible with with the convention, um, yeah, it, it just leaves you speechless, you know. I, I and I, I tend to try and refrain from talking about British politics through the sphere of immigration asylum policy when I do speak to my friends from other countries because, put simply, I'm embarrassed by it. Yeah, I agree. I'm with you. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. It's hard. It's really hard to read. It, it to think that you know a British government can attempt or will attempt to enact. A piece of legislation that says that judges can't take into account the Human Rights Convention, the Refugee Convention, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights of 1966, a convention against torture and other cruel and inhuman and degrading treatment or punishment, um, a convention against trafficking in human beings, customary international law, and then, for good measure, 
any other international law, conventional rule of international law whatsoever, including any order, judgment or decision or measure of the European Court of Human Rights. I mean, just anyone listen to all the things I just read out. This government wants to disregard those and force the judges in this country to disregard those conventions. And for good measure, just so in case, you know, there's there's people out there who think domestic law should trump international treaties and con- conventions. They also, the bill intends to disapply domestic common law. So there's nothing left. This is what they intend to do. When When is it enough for the king to step in? That's my question. When, when, when can the king just step in and say, listen, I know I've tasked you guys with running the country and, and, I, and I sort of swear you in and shake your hand and leave it to you, but enough is enough now. I mean, I'd love to know, I'd love to know what, what judges think about this, you know, because judges, quite, quite rightly, because they sort of respect their independence, they don't come out and, and comment on these things. But can you, can you imagine being a judge sitting there and reading that? You'd, I'm not even talking about one of the Supreme Court judges that, that delivered the Rwanda judgment. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be them. I'm talking any judge. You're sitting there and you now know that if, if this is allowed to pass, precedent has been set in this country that the executive can tell you what you can and cannot consider, notwithstanding the fact that you know it's wrong and what laws to disapply, despite the fact that they haven't been formally disapplied. Yeah, when did it? Well, I get it's a good point. I mean, I know, I guess I know the general answer is that judges who are in office can't speak out or if they, if they do, it's in very general terms. But I know former justices of the Supreme Court, when they give their leaving statement, it, it tends to be like a thank you and a goodbye type of speech. They do speak openly. But you're right. Who will speak up if it's not if it's not politicians and it's people, if it's lawyers or campaigners who are just disregarded as kind of lefties or whatever? It's can't it can't be sitting judges. You mentioned the king. <laughs> it can't be the king even though it's notable that I think he appeared in, didn't he appear in the High Court soon after? I'm not sure if... Yeah, he took a tour of the yeah, RCJ. Yeah. He took a tour of the RCJ, didn't he? I'm not he? sure yeah. if that was... Uh, it'd be interesting to know, see if that was already in the diary or whether it was um, suddenly moved up as priority. But um, I think, yeah, it will be a sad day if, if this bill passes and the King effectively it's in his name to read something like that out when the Britain has, has, has had a long-standing ancient tradition of keeping the courts separate or giving the courts power to keep the executive in check uh, that that goes out the window here uh, it's just yeah it's a sad day you know you know what also doesn't you know what also doesn't make sense sorry to cut you off what also doesn't make sense to me is we went from the high court to the court of appeal to the supreme court right if they thought they could just pull this off they, could, they should have just done that at the outset why why go through all of that litigation and wait for the supreme court to tell you that you've got it wrong only to say all right just gonna just gonna change the law and disapply it it might have actually been easier for them to pitch had the supreme court not come out and said what it said it's even it should really be even more difficult for them now with the supreme court's judgment but for one reason or another they think it's still totally acceptable to do this the whole situation is is completely mind-boggling. I agree. I agree. Well, listen. Yeah, I think it's it's good timing that someone like Toby Cadman speaks on his work. The irony is that we're talking about potential breaches of international law by countries. His impressive CV includes the likes of Syria, Myanmar, Serbia, 
Colombia, the list is long, Bahrain, and sadly, what we're talking about is that maybe this the sign of things to come is that the UK will be on that list soon enough. Maybe we'll just do a happier episode, Troy, for um for New Year's Eve. How about that? Yeah, yeah, we have to. We have to. I'm definitely not letting this one be the Christmas one. No way. <laughs> All right. Well, Anna, over to you. And thank you from us. Uh, thank you. A big thank you to Toby for what is, I think, a really, really interesting episode. Cheers, Roy. In a bit. We have Toby Cadman with us today. He is a barrister, international law specialist and co-head of the Guernica 37 International Justice Chambers in London. Toby, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time. No problem. Pleasure. It'd be great if you can start just introducing yourself, really, uh, just a bit about your background and the type of cases that you work on. Sure. So um, I've been a member of the bar since 2001. I initially, my practice initially took me to Bosnia. So I spent, I think, about eight eight or nine years in Bosnia uh, doing human rights work initially and then moving on to war crimes prosecution. Came back to the UK in 2010, joined Nine Bedford Row Chambers as part of their sort of international practice group. That took me on to Kenya initially and then to Bangladesh. I spent a number of years actually still working on issues related to Bangladesh. And then since that time, I was engaged in, in the conflict in Syria, uh, in Yemen, Libya, Iraq, more recently uh, looking at the situation in Ukraine and Palestine. And then in 2016, I think it was, uh, I set up with my, my partner in crime, um, Almudena, who's a, a Spanish lawyer based in the US. We set up Guernica 37 Chambers in London and then subsequently set up the Guernica 37 Centre in uh, San Francisco, which is a non-profit law firm. Um, we continue to do a range of human rights um, international work. We also, through our chambers, have a thriving domestic, uh, criminal and public law practice. And that's sort of taken me to where I am now. Fascinating work. And what I explained briefly before we started is that we we are obviously refugee lawyers. So what we see in our work is that the real life humanitarian impact of things like conflict and genocide, etc., what, what we don't get a lot of exposure sure. to is where the accountability and justice lies for a lot of the actions that result in that kind of humanitarian catastrophe. And I mean, at the moment, on a lot of people's minds will be what's happening in Gaza, and we will get into that a bit later. But I think if we just strip that back a bit and go to the basics, it would be really helpful for our listeners to hear a bit about what international criminal law is, who it binds, what its jurisdiction is, what its effect can be and, and when it applies, really. Sure. So quite often we, we hear terms thrown, thrown around like international humanitarian law, uh, international criminal law, international human rights law, um, what the work that, that we look at. So there are different legal frameworks that apply to both the domestic and an international context. Um, so if we look at, as, as you've mentioned, the, the situation in Gaza uh, right now, so obviously the sides to a conflict are, are governed by the, the laws and customs of war. Um, that is broadly stated um, and, and can refer to a number of different conventions and treaties. Um, most of us will have heard of the Gen Geneva Conventions, 
So, for example, Israel is bound in particular by the Fourth Geneva Convention, which governs an occupying authority. And so, as Israel is occupying the uh, Palestinian territories, I mean, we, we refer to it as the occupied Palestinian territories. And so, Israel is bound by that in particular. Um, and that's become a, a, an important consideration recently because. Obviously, what happened, the, the, the tragic events that happened on the 7th of October that have effectively spurned what we're seeing now. Um, we've heard lots of discussions uh, of Israel acting in self-defense. But if we go back to uh, a matter that was before the International Court of Justice many years ago that related to the, the wall, which became known as the wall case. So the International Court of Justice said that Israel didn't have the right to, to rely on self-defense in the context of an attack from a territory that it was occupying. So, you know, we have to look at all of these these different terms. And of course, we have different institutions that are um, on the international level uh, that are there to to enforce those those laws and agreements that each state has agreed to be bound by. So we have, for example, the International Criminal Court um, that deals with individual criminal responsibility. So doesn't hold states responsible, but holds individuals responsible. And the International Criminal Court has limited jurisdiction. So it only has jurisdiction over those states that have ratified uh, what's called the Rome Statute, um, those states that have referred themselves to the International Criminal Court, such as Palestine um, and Ukraine, and those states that have been referred by the UN Security Council to to the International Criminal Court. Um, the problem that we have with that, um, as uh, many, many of your listeners will know, I'm sure, is that each of the five permanent members of the, uh, of the UN Security Council have the ability to veto any referral to the International Criminal Court. So, in particular, Libya was the last referral, and it's, it's likely to be the last referral we see, because invariably we have uh, Russia and China sticking together, preventing what they consider to be regime change, and then the US and, to a lesser extent, the UK, uh, preventing any uh, any referral mechanism as far as uh, as Israel is concerned. So, so you know, there, politics plays a very, very important part in that process. We have then the International Court of Justice, which is, uh, that, that deals with either state state-to-state uh, responsibility, or, or a matter can be referred by the UN General Assembly to the International Court of Justice to issue what's called an advisory opinion. And um, we've seen that more recently in relation to climate change. We've seen it in relation to interpretation of the Genocide Convention. And more recently, just, uh, um, just over a week ago, the International Court of Justice issued uh, provisional measures against Syria in a case brought by the Netherlands and Canada, again, again, we've been assisting the Dutch government in that process, for breaches of, of the torture convention. And that, I think, is something that we're likely to see more of in the future once states become aware of what kind of mechanisms there are in order to, to address a question of, imp- of impunity globally. And then, of course, we have the United Nations more generally that has a number of different mechanisms. So it has created sort of investigative mechanisms to deal with Syria, um, to deal with uh, Iraq, and also to deal with uh, uh, Myanmar. 
and then you have the uh, the Human Rights Council in in uh, that sits in Geneva, and, and a number of different what we call special rapporteurs and working groups that deal with have spe specific mandates, and that sort of broadly speaking is what you have on the international level. And then you, of course, you have these ad hoc processes that are set up, and then of course you have uh, all of this applies at the national level. And I guess within that context, and talking about Gaza. What do you anticipate are the potential next steps there? And I guess the, the limitations involved in terms of jurisdiction and anything else relevant. Yeah. So, so as far as um, the, the current situation is concerned, and, and you have to bear in mind that um, this, is, this is not a, a new situation as far as the ICC is concerned. So um, the previous prosecutor, Fatou Ben Souda, um, at the ICC, she had uh, made statements prior to stepping down to the effect that she, that her office had jurisdiction and was looking at attacks in Gaza, uh, attacks in, in, in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, issues of settlements. And so there were a number of different areas that she was already looking at before this current uh, um, conflict emerged. And so now we have a, a very well-known English barrister who's head of the Office of the Prosecutor, Karim Khan, who has effectively come into office having to deal with both Ukraine and Palestine, uh, which is obviously a, a daunting task for, for, for anyone to take on. And I think what we're, what we're hearing is resources being designated for these investigations. We know that he's already been to the, the Rafa border. He you know, when we talk about challenges, one of the challenges that he faces is not actually being allowed to go into Gaza to, to investigate, um, which is obviously seriously problematic. Uh, we, we, we experienced the same thing with the UN Commission of Inquiry, the last UN Commission of Inquiry on Palestine, not being allowed to go into Palestine to, to conduct their investigations. Um, that's a, a, a sort of a blanket ban that Israel uh, puts on that. Um, so... There are, of, of course, real challenges. I think what we were likely to see indictments being being raised on both sides, both in terms of the attack by Hamas on the 7th of October and, and other attacks that have been committed in Israel. And then the attacks that we see now, um, particularly the attacks on hospitals, on refugee centres and civilian infrastructure, in a situation, as we heard just this morning, that upwards of 9,000 children have been killed. So... Uh, all, of course, if you don't properly investigate these matters, you don't look at these matters in a coordinated manner, then of course that's going to affect the legitimacy of the institution. And that was the whole purpose of the ICC being set up. Um, and so it, I think it, it's of critical importance that they now move forward and demonstrate uh, a commitment to justice wherever it occurs, whether it's in Palestine, in Ukraine, wherever it occurs and wherever the ICC has jurisdiction. If, if they're prevented from collecting evidence, conducting investigations, is that is it possible to still proceed effectively? Have there been other examples around the world where the same things happened and there's been success in the ICC regardless? Yes. So so there, have, there were, of course, uh, real challenges in getting in to, to investigate the, the, the forced expulsion of the Rohingya, for example, um, there, was, there was no ability to go into into Myanmar to in, to investigate those matters. But nonetheless, the matter is going forward. 
what you have to rely on and increasingly what we're seeing uh, a reliance on for the purpose of establishing accountability is the reliance on civil society and human rights groups to document. Now, I, I, I put a very strong caveat here is that caution, obviously the prosecutor has to exercise a certain degree of caution because there is a gulf of difference between a human rights monitoring mechanism and a criminal investigation. Obviously the standards are, are very, very different. But I think prosecutors do rely increasingly on uh, the, the, the input and the assistance of civil society actors on the ground. The other thing that I would say is that social media has completely changed the way that um, investigations are carried out. Um, so if we, look at, if we look at Libya, for example, we had an arrest warrant that was based almost exclusively on open source investigative material and social media. You know, I think since the since the Syrian conflict, we we've seen this this emergence of everything being documented in real time and played out on various different social media platforms. And so, and and also, let's not forget a lot of what we're seeing and a lot of what the prosecutor Karen Khan will have to to look at um, and, and assess are actually the public statements by a number of actors as well. So, you know, when you have statements coming from um, officials calling for the total destruction, devastation of Gaza, um, then the prosecutor will have to look at all of that um, very much in the same way that we looked at the, uh, the incitement during the Rwanda genocide, the prosecutor will obviously have to look at these matters here. And again, looking at it on both sides, because there are, there are statements on all sides that the, the prosecutor will have to carefully consider. So, yes, there are challenges. Yes, it does make it diff difficult, but it's not impossible. You can still properly investigate and document a case, even if you don't have actual access. Yeah, it often feels like the outcome of these cases is retrospective I guess that it's after the the worst atrocities has already happened I wonder if you think the ICC has any power to to prevent in the moment I guess in the in the Gaza example of course there's justice and accountability which has a significant impact but it doesn't do much to stop what's happening now I wonder if you think it does have a power to do that and if that has happened in any other cases you could draw upon Certainly, I think that the ICC has a strong preventative tool um, at its disposal that it doesn't always use, and perhaps this is this is one of the, the situations where where it could could use it much more effectively, because what what we what we hear are statements coming from the Israeli side that certainly that they don't fall within the jurisdiction uh, of the ICC, when very very clearly they do. Um, I think the only way that you will have any preventative action or any result uh, as to the use of a, a preventative mechanism is when there is actual real steps being taken. I think that what we have seen in a number of different conflicts is that there is no real fear of the ICC since, I would say, the Al-Bashir saga. So where you've got a, a leader who is indicted for genocide who was sitting still in luxury in Sudan, not so much anymore, but at the time he was. And, and, and the ICC couldn't actually get him 
before a, before a judge, and he was also able to travel around the African Union without fear of being handed over. and And that was a that was a real uh, test of. of South Africa in particular, as to uh, as as to their commitment, I'm not so sure we would see the same thing happening now. Uh, I think things have have progressed, but I think the biggest problem is that there 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 is not a fear of the ICC. There is not a fear of even the United Nations taking political steps to 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 sanction leaders in in such situations. I mean, we had. Just, just as a as a uh, personal experience, I remember a number of years ago when we were working on the war crimes trials in Bangladesh, and we had the United Nations saying that that these trials were a flagrant denial of justice, the executions were arbitrary executions of political opponents, and you had the Prime Minister at the time, who's still in power, Sheikh Hasina, basically being recorded as saying that, what are they going to do? They can't stop the war in Syria. What are they going to do? Come and arrest me here in Bangladesh? No. I mean, that's the the problem that we face now. um, And this was a discussion that I was having just yesterday, is that if we are unable to respond to this current situation and stop a conflict like what we're seeing in Palestine right now, it really does concern me as to what the the effectiveness or even the point of international criminal justice is, if if we're unable to respond to to any of these, I mean, what is that going to mean? Let's not let, let, let's not necessarily look at it as to what we're seeing now, but what comes next? If we don't respond to fourteen thousand people being killed and fourteen hundred people being killed in Israel, if we don't respond to that through an effective mechanism of accountability, what is the next conflict going to look like? And I think that, that's what we need to, to be thinking of. And I think we're looking at now a situation akin to what we had when the League of Nations was abolished and the United Nations was established. I think we're at that pivotal moment right now. And what would prevent the ICC from taking action? Basically, how in practice does that fear that you legitimately hold not come into play? I think a lot of it is resources. Um, so, it, you know, it's all well and good criticising the, the prosecutor for not taking action. But if, you, if you're not providing him with the resources and the political will to do that, then ultimately you are responsible for what the prosecutor and that institution is not doing. So, you know, we saw the world, or half of the world, come together as far as responding to the Russian invasion of Ukraine was concerned. Yet we don't see the same happening as far as what's happening in Palestine is concerned. And so, you know, the, the picking and choosing is what undermines the process of justice. And, um, I mean, Karim Khan has, has made it quite clear that in order for him to fulfil his mandate, he has to have the resources to do that. But he also has to have the political will. Um, and I'm not saying that there is political interference in what he does and what the judges do with the ICC. But you have to look at the fact that, you know, there isn't a world police force that can go out and arrest individuals and bring them before the ICC. They're reliant on, on states to, to support them and to abide by, by decisions of the court. And, and, and that's, that's where the responsibility really lies. And so, you know, when you have states taking a firm position, like we had with Trump before when he sanctioned 
the, the prosecutor and, and judges for conducting investigations in Afghanistan. And so when you have that, that level of obstruction and with the lack of resources and the lack of, of political will, um, it makes his job impossible. I guess in, in contrast to this, there obviously is amazing things that the ICC have done historically and continue to do. I guess either from your own experience or cases that you haven't been involved in that you think are particularly pertinent, what are the big success stories of the International Criminal Court and how it has obtained accountability and justice? Well, I think you have to look at the the way that it, it has it addressed particular the, the use of child soldiers, um, and there have been a number of cases that that have had an impact. I think you you need to look at sort of the evolution of international international criminal justice to to really see what the what the successes have been because the the ICC is is still very much in its infancy. Um, if you look at, I would say the sort of the achievements of the ICTY, so the the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and then that for Rwanda. Um, you look at the successes in shaping international criminal justice as as we understand it now. They've been very very influential in that process, um, so, and that sort of has led to to the creation of the first permanent international criminal court. And then you, if you look at the the, the sort of the early stages and the cases that have been have been taken on by the prosecutor, then I think that is very important when we when we look at although they haven't been able to get the those most senior leaders that they're after before the ICC through no fault of its own, that's again through the lack of state cooperation, that has sort of hampered their 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 success. And I think they would have been a great deal more successful had they had that level of support. But notwithstanding the the the, the situations that they have taken on and the situations they're dealing with now, like for example, the issuance of an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin, for example. I mean that that that, that is a huge a huge step to take and, and, and a very brave step to take. But obviously we need to see decisions such as that such as that being enforced. And again, a lot of that will boil down to to resources and, and state cooperation. Is there anything that can be done to increase that state cooperation? Is it entirely political and it's not the court doesn't have the ability to do so? Or do you think if it builds legitimacy through successfully investigating certain cases that it will gather that momentum naturally? Well, I think very much in the same way that if if an individual interferes in a process that amounts to obstruction of justice, that person is charged and, and put on trial. Um, and, and rightly so. By the same token, if a state is interfering or obstructing in that process through non-cooperation, and they are in fact a state party to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, then there, there has to be consequences for that. And, and I think that's probably one of the areas where there, there has been little um, political will, little progress, shall we say. So I think it, it, it can be done, and and in very much the same way that we're now seeing the use of sanctions, particularly in the United Kingdom and the United States, being used um, against um, state officials and individuals for for human rights violations and and for corruption, then though that that sanctions regime could 
also be used for lack of cooperation with the International Criminal Court, as an example, where that where that leads to the perception of obstructing a, a judicial process. So, you know, there, there are tools available. Um, that, that we just have to have the courage to use them. Does the court already have jurisdiction to do that? Or would something need to happen agreement-wise to enable it? I mean, look, there, there are provisions within the legal framework that, that deals with uh, non-cooperation. So, so there, there, there are tools available to them. I'm just not sure that those tools are sufficiently robust to actually deal with the, 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 the level of the problem. Has it ever been used successfully or unsuccessfully before? Or is it always kind of an area that isn't, isn't touched? Uh, so outside of the International Criminal Court, you have the, the Assembly of States Parties. So, all of, so every year they, they, they meet to, 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 to address certain issues. And I think it's, um, it's one of the issues that has been dealt with within, within that framework. But, um, and there have been cases brought or... or, or not cases brought, but certainly initiatives where where states uh, are perceived not to be cooperating. But I think generally it, it is a matter that is dealt with that is dealt with politically. And I think we need to move away from from allowing that to, to actually taking concrete action to to penalise those those states that. And by the same token, one of the things that I think is also important is we also have to remember that the the International Criminal Court is not set up to deal with every single situation that occurs across the globe in the territories of its, of, of, of its member states. You know, it, it, it's a court of last resort, effectively, and, and, it, and it's based on what's called a principle of complementarity. So it means that they will only take over a matter where there is a lack of will or a lack of ability to deal with something domestically. I think one of the things that we've never really focused on is developing, through the principle of complementarity, developing the national system so that it is sufficiently robust to deal with these matters. And only, and you know, there is a responsibility to, you know, if I if I enjoy, invite you to join my club, I want to make sure that you're a suitable member for my club. And so, if you have an appalling record on the rule of law in the domestic setting, then really should you be allowed to, to be to remain a member of that club? So I, I think that's one of the things that, that we've never really looked at is sort of addressing the core problem um, at the root rather than having a critical approach to the ICC for not having dealt with something, which arguably is the responsibility of the state. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. How, how would that work in developing the domestic court system? Would it be an international organisation that would go in to assist with that process, or it would be from the domestic outwards? I mean, I think I think in order for any process like that to be truly effective, I mean, you have to work with the national institutions in order to to empower them and to 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 give them the, the tools by which they can do that. And don't forget that you know trials at the international level take many, many years and are very, very expensive. And it is generally better suited to dealing with such matters at the national level in in the areas where the crimes have occurred and where the victims can actually see that open justice is, is being delivered. 
Um, and so I think it, it would have to be done within that framework. The ICC has always stated that it's not its responsibility to, and the principle of complementarity doesn't extend to that. So, so they basically said, we don't have the ability to do that. I, I think that's wrong. And I think that, of course, we can't expect the International Criminal Court to, to remedy the, the legal system of all of its members. But you know, there has to be a certain level of responsibility from the international community to to address that um, as, as, as a core problem. So again, I'm not necessarily suggesting that there's an easy, quick fix to it, but it's something that has to be considered because constantly we're, we're running into this where the ICC doesn't have the time, doesn't have the resources to deal with the situation. And, and so you know, we sort of say, well, okay, sorry about that. Bangladesh being the perfect example. So you know, the situation that we've seen in Bangladesh Actually, just in in the last month, um, leading up to another election, between eight and ten thousand members of the opposition are alleged to have been arrested, thrown in jail. We have hundreds of enforced disappearances, extrajudicial killings, but we don't focus on that because there are so many other uh, competing interests to look at. Yeah, yeah. And finally, in the context of all of that, how do you see the future? of the ICC? How do you see it surviving, evolving, say, in the next 20 years? Well, I think, as I said earlier, I mean, I'm, I, I am very worried for the, the future of justice and accountability more, more generally. The ICC has a very important role to play in that. Um, I think that what we have now, in terms of its leadership, they clearly understand uh, the, the, the issues that really need to be addressed. And one of the things that Karen Khan has, has has taken as a, I would say, a core principle of his, of his mandate is that you have to focus your resources on those cases that are likely to have an impact and you're, that you're likely to, to be able to effectively bring them to trial. There's no point in investigating a case for five years where you can't get into the country or you can't get to the evidence um, and there's no realistic prospect of having somebody brought before a court so you have to th- you have to use your resources very very carefully but i think that this as i said um, i think this is a pivotal moment for the international criminal court as it is for the entire system and i think what what we see over the next 12 24 months will determine the future of all of these institutions and and will will determine our concept of justice and our commitment to justice fascinating interview toby thank you so much for taking the time and coming on thanks very much